Good evening, everyone. My name is David, and I'm an alcoholic. It's so good to be here today, and what a privilege to be at St. Marie's. I'm telling you, we have, in fact, Ed uh, and Phil met me this morning at the airport, and congratulations, Phil, on your, on your chip. And we came back from Indianapolis. We've been on tour to Batesville. Move, move it up. Okay, got it. There we go. We've been to Batesville. We went over to Olden, uh, Oldenburg, went downtown. Tom lived close by at the end of the bottom of the hill. And we, went, we came over to St. Maurice tonight, and I want to tell you, you all have something very special here. When I came to Clifty Falls two years ago, it was the first time I've been to uh, Indiana in recovery. I came here several times drunk, but I, you know, <laughs> first time sober, I saw a whole different state. It was amazing. <laughs> I know the bar walls, and I know what the rooms look like and the ceilings. I have those down pretty good. But uh, it was really neat to meet some people, and Sam and Henny are here tonight, and David and Mary Lee and Liz and Dick, and let's see who else, Roy, uh, so many of you. And, and I fell in love with the people in Indiana. My sponsor is Keith L., and he said to give you a big hello. And the reason I wanted to bring that up, because he told me before I went to Clifty Falls, he said, you will fall in love with the recovery in Indiana. He said, there's some neat people up there. And I must say, that's true. You know, to meet Ed, we met at a breakfast um, uh, two years ago. We had breakfast together. And, and I told uh, Joan, his wife, tonight that I remember him. And it's been, he's been on my mind. And when he called me several months ago, I recognized his voice like that, and I knew exactly who he was. He had his hair slicked back that morning. I knew exactly who it was. It was really neat. We don't. We don't. That's right. Ed, I want to present this money to you as chair to, for this group. I must say to you, it is an absolute privilege. And my wife says it most. In fact, uh, you don't know what it does for me to come here. And, and I want this to go on. So let's, let's give this back to the group, and you all enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The payment I have received in recovery is, is just unbelievable what I've received in the sense that I have a life today that I, I never could have had. In fact, you know, I thought it was just going to be the same life I had before I started to drink. You know, when I was getting sober, I thought, well, maybe it's just going to be like that when I was a teenager because I started drinking at 19. Maybe it's going to be like I was when a child. And, and what I'm realizing today is I never have felt this way in my whole life. I've never had a sense of peace. I've never had a sense of being okay, of just being okay right where I am, you know, right where I stand. And my wife said, I don't know if it was to Ed or to, to Joan, they were talking with her about, uh, I think it was Ed, don't you get tired of David going out of town on these conferences? And you know what she said, which I think is very appropriate. She said, but it's so nice when he gets back because I'm different. You see, see, I gained something from being here. And so I really thank you for the invitation. I thank the committee for all the work that you did. I mean, it was wonderful food and, and wonderful fellowship. And uh, I found out that Don went to the school up here on the corner, I think. 1907, right? St. Marie School? Yeah. Oh, you didn't go there at that time, Don. Yeah, he did. Somebody said, yeah, he did, Don. Congratulations on your trip, too. That's wonderful. Let me read to you uh, just, a, just a couple of sentences out of the big book. And I read this because it is so important to my recovery. Because, see, I have a disease which causes me to be in bondage to myself. You know, the third step prayer, which is on the table tonight, relieve me of the bondage of self. And I don't know how to do that. I really don't know. And in fact, I didn't know I was in bondage to myself. But this paragraph so defines that for me. Selfishness, self-centeredness. This is just before the third step in the big book, page 62. That, we think, is the root of all of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Filled by a hundred forms and driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-pity, and self-seeking. You see, that is what my disease is all about. I never understood that. I know that I lived 40 years, 11 months, and three weeks before I found out I have a disease called alcoholism. In fact, I caught it at the treatment center I went to. You know, I wasn't sick until I got there. You know what I'm saying? And, I, and it's just like one day, I, I was sitting in group two or three days later, and it's like, boy, I got this disease. In fact, I was telling Ed a story I want to share. I was in the treatment center, and I, I drank for 22 years. I am an alcoholic, but I also took Valium for 20 years of that, every four hours. And I took pain pills, and I'll share that later. But I was in this first AA meeting, and I was telling everybody, I was crying, you know, I was just crying in my cups. I'd been there two days. And I was telling them about how this doctor had destroyed my life. And the pharmacist who filled all those prescriptions, he destroyed my life. And he, he just, they just gave me all those pills. And so after the meeting was over, this guy named Otis, he's a machinist, he came up and he said, How you doing? My name's Otis. I said, Well, hi, Otis. And he, he came over and he started looking in my shirt and he was pulling up my pant legs like this. And I was going, What are you doing? I was jumping back. I said, What are you doing? He said, I'm looking for all those bruises. I said, What bruises? He said, Those bruises are where you got from that doctor holding you down for 20 years and putting those pills in your mouth like he did. <laughs> 
has a tendency to break through a little thing called denial. Because I realized at that point that, hey, you know, that was the truth, that I took those. I drank. I am an alcoholic. And I think one of the reasons I am an alcoholic is because I drank. You know, if I'd have never drank, I probably wouldn't have been an alcoholic. You know what I'm saying? But what I'm saying is this, is that I realized today that even though I hadn't drank, in fact, my, spot, my counselor, I went to treatment, I said, you know, I hate alcohol. I, I just hate it. It's destroyed my life. And she said, don't be so harsh. I said, what do you mean so harsh? And she said, because it probably saved your life to a degree because you probably killed yourself. You see, my disease has forms that I'm filled with fear, hundreds of forms of it, and self-delusion and self-seeking and self-pity. Let me tell you about it. The three parts of my disease, you know, I have a physical, because when I drink a, I, I drink a drink of alcohol, I have to drink more. I have a, compassion, a compulsion and obsession. I have to drink more. There's no option for me. Uh, there's a second part is the emotional, mental part, and then the spiritual part. And, and for me, the first memory, and going back, by the way, when I got in recovery, I didn't really have a memory of my childhood. I didn't have any detailed memories. I couldn't remember my teachers. I, I remembered the bad things. But the fourth step and fifth step, sixth and seventh, eighth and ninth step work has really been helpful to me to go back and discover this little guy named David. You know, red-haired, freckled, skinny, you know, used to hang upside down on gym sets, loved to do that and talk like Donald Duck. I loved to do that, you know, stuff like that. I didn't realize. And, and so what the earliest memory I have found for me is I was about six or seven years old and I was sitting in my mom and dad's car. We were going to an aunt's house, Aunt Sue, I believe it was. In any event, it was an aunt's house. And my mother, about a mile away, and by the way, if I use any terms that throw you all off southern ease, you know, just stick up your hand. Because, see, today, here's what I've learned. Went to a restaurant, Phil orders a sandwich. And he says, and she says, what do you want on it? And he said, send it through the garden. And I said, excuse me, what, is that, what does that mean? I said, you know, I want to know before I order mine, I might want to send mine through the garden. You know what I'm saying? And, of course, he explained this lettuce, tomato, mayonnaise, and that type of stuff. You know, and so I learned that one. And the other one is I got the, the flyer. Ed gave me a copy of the flyer about the time for this, for this event tonight. And it said the time, you know, the uh, casual session, uh, 5.30, slow time. And I'm going, <laughs> oh, you know what I said? I said, oh, I see what it means. You come and you just kind of relax. You know, it's, it's like, you just kind of relax. You know, I was trying to. That's hard to do when you're a speaker. But, you know, I was trying to think about how am I going to relax? You know, just enjoy that time. Slow it down. <laughs> And then they explain it's because of the time zone. You know, it's Eastern Standard Time all the time, never daylight savings, and da 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 And those people from Cincinnati kid them all about it, all that stuff. So I learned that today. But if I use any southern expressions that throw you off, just kind of raise your hand and I'll explain. We were in this car. Now, get back with me in this car. I'm six years old. We're going to my aunt's house. And my mother, about a mile away, and she put her hand in the back seat. She pointed her finger, and it was right in my face. And she said, when we get to Sue's, don't you young'uns ask for one thing. Don't even ask for a drop of water because when we leave there, I don't want Sue to say, Lethal and Claudia, that's my mom and my dad. Or welcome back here, but those mean younguns had better never come again. I don't know if y'all ever had that said, but you know, it hit me. And the next memory I have is my brother Larry. Uh, he's 16 months older. He still is. Nothing's changed. Still is this day. But we were sitting on this bench, this wooden bench out by the back door, and they were in the den uh, living room having a ball. You know, just all these adults in there talking. And I don't know if you ever did this, but I sat on my hands. I don't know if you ever did that, but I put them right under my thighs and I sat on them because I was afraid I'd touch something. And if I touched something, I'd get in trouble. And so I'm sitting there, and I started to do something. And I think, honestly, I don't know if it started that day, but somewhere along that time in my life, when people would come about 10 feet from me, I'd do like this. I'd, I'd, I'd look at them and I'd smile just like this and I'd shake my head. And I'm not even Japanese. You know what I'm saying? I'm not Japanese. But I'd start shaking my head and I'd say these words would kind of mumble out of my mouth. I'd go, I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. I call it fining. See, I perfected the art of fining to a fine-tooth comb. I want to tell you, it's I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. Now, until I got to treatment, they explained to me what fine means in other terms which I had never heard before. And all of a sudden, I adopted okay. <laughs> so I just shift off the fine. But I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. You see, here's what would happen to me. If you were going to leave me and, and go away and I was going to say goodbye and you had a frown or you didn't have a happy look on your face, you know what I'd say? I'd say, excuse me, uh, are you okay? And you know what I really meant? Am I okay with you? Are, are we okay? I really wasn't too concerned about the person. I was concerned about, are we okay? That feeling of being okay. Because see, when I got back in the car, when we left my aunt's house, I had to go to the bathroom that night, or that day. I didn't go to the bathroom, and I was in pain. I didn't ask for anything. I didn't go to the bathroom. I was afraid I was getting trouble, see. And I get in the car, and we close the door. And you know the first question I asked my mother? Mom, how did I do? How did I do? Did, did I do okay? Can, are they going to invite me back? How did I do? And you know what? I have spent my life asking that question. I don't know if you know what I'm saying. How did I do? Are, are, am I okay with you? Or, are we okay? 
Are we okay? People found it very difficult to get away from me when I talked to them because if they didn't have a smile on their face, I asked them another question. Excuse me. Yeah, Don, can I ask you one more thing? And they'd start leaving until he had a smile on his face and then I knew we were okay and I could go on with my life. You see, I didn't understand that. Filled by a hundred forms of fear. It's like this. It's like God called all the six-year-olds in the world together and put them in this big stadium. And he said, now I'm going to tell you about how to grow up. I'm going to tell you about how to go through puberty. I'm going to tell you about how to date. I'm going to tell you about how to graduate from high school. I'm going to tell you about how to go on to college. I'm going to tell you about how to meet some guy or girl and, and start a family and get married and, and be responsible in your job and, and how to raise children kindly and gently. And, and just as he started, I said, excuse me, i got to go to the bathroom. And see, I went to the bathroom in the back of the stadium. And when I got back, God said, and now you know everything you need to know to grow up. You know what I'm saying? And I'm looking around and I, I looked at it and I said, do you know about dating? And they said, of course I do. I said, oh, okay. So they'd say, David, do you know about dating? Sure I do. I didn't know. Do you know about growing up? Sure I do. I didn't know. Do you know about going to high school? Oh, of course I know how to do. I didn't know. But I told you I knew. Because, see, my worst fear of those hundred forms of fear was the fear that you would find out I was afraid. You know what I'm saying? I had to be okay. I just had to be okay. I had to be okay. You see, the other part of my disease is I have a thinking process. And I don't know if it's because, because the fear or whatever, but here's what the thinking process is. Because, see, fear hits me right here in the lower part of my gut. And it starts like a baseball, then, a, then, a, then a, a basketball. And it fills up my stomach, and then it gets into my chest, and I have a tight chest like an elephant's foot. And I get tension in my neck, and I have headaches, and I have blurred vision. In fact, I have diarrhea, upset stomach, can't sleep, wake up all times of the night and can't sleep. That's what my fear does to me if I stay with it long enough. I take tests three times before I actually take them. You know, I go through them in my mind and live through the process of failing. And it starts for me a, a pattern of thinking. And a guy in, in uh, Dallas, Texas, and uh, back in 1988, the year I got sober, he said something very important. He said, alcoholism is a disease characterized by pyramiding thoughts. And I thought he meant like this, you know, like a pyramid. And I said... That didn't make sense. So I went up to him and I talked to him afterwards and I, and, and I said, could you tell me what, what you meant by that? He said, it's an upside down pyramid. He said, these thoughts come right out of the center of your brain just like this. And let me share with you how it works for me. I can be getting up. Everything's pretty good. It's a Tuesday morning. And I look down and I got this little red pimple on my, my cat. And I'll start scratching it. You know? I'll think, well, I wonder what that is. I'll go into the shower and I scratch it a few times more. and come back. I'll be washing it out. And I look down, it's got a little redness around it now. And I start thinking, well, I wonder if that's a growth of some kind. You see, all of a sudden things start getting bigger and bigger. I'll be sitting in my office and, and my boss walks by. It's 10 o'clock and I'm fine. You know, I'm fine. Everything's, how you doing? Oh, I'm fine. How you doing? I'm working my desk. I'm fine. My boss walks by. I say, good morning, Don. He said, doesn't say anything. And I go, Don, good morning. And he doesn't say anything. Here it goes. Just like this. First thought, wonder why I didn't speak. Second thought, he's probably upset with me. Third thought, I bet it's that, that uh, talk we had yesterday, that discussion in the staff meeting. He didn't like what I said to him. Or so I bet it's that project I'm going to give him. And he, he doesn't think I got it ready. And before long, at 10 o'clock, I can be fine. And at 10.01, I'm fired. You know what I'm saying? I know, I know he's going to fire me. And it's like, he's going to fire me. And then I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And then I think, well, I have to go down to the unemployment office and apply for an unemployment check. You know what I'm saying? Now, I'm, I'm okay at 10 o'clock. I'm sitting at my desk. Everything's fine. At 10.01, I'm fired. I'm going down to the unemployment office and then I'll start another pyramid off that pyramid. And I'll go, well, what if they won't give me one? You know what I'm saying? Well, how am I going to feed my family? And here I go off this other pyramid about figuring out how I'm going to feed my family. That's weighty stuff. It's painful stuff. I, did a, I thought I only did it with, uh, with bad things. But you know what? I was in the shower about three years ago and I was humming a country and western tune. About 7 o'clock in the morning. I don't know why I was humming a country and western tune because my life was going along pretty good at that time. But you know what? <laughs> But I was. I got out. I go over, I draw off, and I'm, sh I'm shaving at the window. I mean, the, the window. Uh, try the mirror, Liz. Try the mirror. That's a mirror. And I'm thinking, where am I going to get a tour bus? You know, where am I going to get a tour bus? A tour bus. What size? You know, I'm thinking about the color. You know. And I stopped and I thought, I don't need a tour bus. <laughs> I just don't need one. And I, I really went back and I think, here's how it worked. The thought. First thought out of this pyramid was, Hmm, that humming sounds pretty good. I bet I could sing country western music if I practiced enough. And if I practiced enough and, you know, got a group together and went around Fayetteville, you know, and, and played a couple of gigs, I bet I could get b b good enough to go out to Nashville, Tennessee. And I'd go out there and I'd get a bigger group and get me an agent and get a contract signed and we'd go on tour and I'll need a tour bus. It makes sense. You see what I'm saying? But here's the important point. 
Living that way is very painful for me because it creates fear. Hundreds of forms of fear. Because I'm always thinking about on Friday what's going to happen to me Monday. I can never enjoy the weekend because I'm so concerned and, and, and worried and got this thought pattern, what's going to happen to me? I'll never forget what happened one night. I was uh, about two years sober and, my, and I called my sponsor. I'd left my, my office at quarter five. My boss just dumped all this stuff on me at quarter five. He told me how bad I was doing this and da-da-da-da-da. And I, I went home and I was angry. And about 9.30... Friday night, I was livid. I was ready to be tied. And I called my sponsor and said, Keith, it's not working. And you know what my boss said to me? And he started telling me, I was telling him all this stuff. And he said, real quietly, he said, David, he said, where are you standing? And I said, what do you mean? He said, where are you standing? I said, I'm standing in the den of my home. He said, look at your feet. <laughs> on the phone, I'm looking at my feet. I said, yeah. He said, what are they standing on? I said, my carpet. He said, okay. He said, what day of the week is it? I said, it's Friday. He said, okay. He said, what time is it? I said, 9.30. He said, a.m. or p.m.? I said, it's dark outside. <laughs> it's, it's night. He said, okay. He said, when did your weekend start? I said, uh, 5 o'clock. He said, well, let me ask you a question. Do you know that this is the only Friday night, weekend night that you're going to have this week? I said, well, no, I hadn't thought about that. He said, well, it is. He said, and you've worked hard this week, haven't you? I said, yeah. He said, you deserve this weekend break, don't you? I said, I sure do. He said, then how much longer do you choose to let your father-in-law live in your head. You're going to do either let him go now or you can let him go at 11 o'clock tonight. You can let him go at 7 tomorrow morning. You can let him go Sunday afternoon at 3 or you can let him go maybe Monday when you go back to work and you'll destroy the weekend. You see, I've never known about living in the now. I've never known. This thought pattern, these hundred forms of fear and the self-delusion. See, the self-delusion for me is everything I look at is bigger than life. It's bigger than life. It's not just life. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's not just a problem. It's a big problem. Now, let me tell you about it. The first night I drank alcohol on March 22nd, 1966, I was 19 years old, I sat down at the Rascal in Greenville, North Carolina, and I drank a Paps Blue Ribbon, tall Paps Blue Ribbon. And you know what happened? You know what happened to me? My thinking stopped. You know what? I was present. <laughs> you know, I, I went over and asked a girl to dance. I was telling jokes. Man, I was moving, you know, just singing along. You know what I'm saying? I didn't care what people thought of me. You know what I'm saying? I didn't care what they said about me in school if I had that exam next week. I was present on Monday night, March 22nd, 1966. I was happy and I didn't... You know, it was wonderful. You see, my disease, what it is, is I have hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion. And what alcohol did for me is it stopped those fears. It stopped that self-delusion. It made me feel great. It made me feel like a winner. It made me feel like I didn't care what you thought of me. And that's when people started to say, David, you got a drinking problem. I didn't have a drinking problem. Drinking was what solved my problem. My problem was trying to go through that thought and, see, and being so frightened all the time. When I was 13 years old, we had pig feed sacks. And I don't know if you like Purina pig feed. Is Purina a brand up here? It's a kind of a... Okay. Prina pig feed. In those days, we had pigs and chickens and that stuff. But if you bought 100 pounds of Prina pig feed, you got four yards of cotton gingham cloth. That's what my mother called it. And, and she would take this cloth and wash it to get the feed out of it. And then she would starch it, or she called it sizing it. And then she'd take these shirt patterns, and she would cut out shirts for my brother Larry and I. And we had matching shirts. And, uh, and, and, uh, and she would make those shirts. Now, let me tell you about those shirts. I call them pig feed sack shirts. I guess you can tell I like them a lot. But the pig feed sack shirt... And this shirt was, I mean, this cloth was white cloth and it had purple flowers and green stems and green, green uh, leaves on the stems. And I mean, it's something that, that a, you know, a young guy, redhead and freckles should not have to wear. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> I wasn't partial to them. And the, here's the point. The, the shirt was pretty normal. I mean, it had a pocket and all that stuff. And, and Mother starched them. She thought starch was next to godly or something. I'm not sure. But anyway, but the collar started right up here on the top. And, and, and they start right here like a normal collar and they would come on out and they'd 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 come on out. And they'd come out about six inches off the shoulder blade to this sharp point. You know, I'd poke people in the eyes as I moved around class. You know what I'm saying? And these things were like cardboard. And, and it was in the day before the flying nun was popular on TV. Do y'all remember that? <laughs> you know, and I'd have my lunch bag and my books and I'd start running to the bus. Here I am, this freckle-faced, skinny, little red-headed boy, you know, rather be dead and red on the head and stuff like that. And I'm running to the school bus and my, my collars would catch wind. They'd start flapping like this. You know, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I'd learn to run and pat in place. I was doing just like this. I didn't like those shirts, I want to tell you. But when I was 13, of my, 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 I was 13, it was August that year, very hot in North Carolina. Uh, we had chickens, and I had to go get the eggs every day. I had 13 hens, one lady regular, so I got 12 eggs one day and 13 the next. 
And uh, I had a little half-pound Maxwell Half coffee can I kept for years to put my eggs in. And, uh, and so we had been picking butter beans since 5.30 that morning, had a bunch of butter beans. We'd been shelling these butter beans on this back porch, and my Aunt Marie was there, my brother Larry and I, we were just shelling. And finally my mother said, David, go down and get your eggs. So I had a pig feed sack shirt on. I jumped on my 21-inch bicycle, grabbed my Maxwell House coffee can. And I start pedaling to the back end of the yard where the chicken coop was. And my mother yelled, David, don't you ride that bike, you'll slip and fall and break those eggs. And I knew something better than she knew, I knew I could do that. You know, I'd done it a hundred times. So I got my 13 eggs. I came back to the back porch. I hit my brakes, and my bike started sliding out from under me, and I landed on my right side with raw eggs all over my face, and I had mud all over my pig feet sack shirt. And I, you know, and I was laying there, and my mother kind of went berserk. She really did. And she got up, and as I started to get up, she kicked me back down. And I got up, and she kicked me back down. And I got up, and she kicked me back down. And I truly don't know how many times she did that. My, my, my aunt uh, yelled, Lethal, you're going to kill that boy. And when she did that, my mother stopped. And I thought, well, now it's over. And so I uh, started to get back up. And she took the broom we'd been sweeping the hulls with and she broke it across my back. And it hurt. It hurt. And I laid there, and this is a very important part of the spiritual part of my disease, the self-seeking part, is that I laid there, and as I was laying there, hurt. You know what I started to decide? That moment and the next few moments, the next few minutes, the next few hours, the next few days, the next few weeks, the months and years. Do you know what I started to decide? And I made a decision that the God I understood as a child was not going to help me. That if I was going to survive this thing called life, I was going to have to do it myself. You, you know what I'm saying? See, at that moment, I think the definition of my spiritual disease is that it's when I put God in the center of my life only where, but, excuse me, when I put myself in the center of my life only where God belongs. And so that day, laying on that ground, I decided if I could ever get up from there, I was going to be something. I didn't know what. My Uncle Alfonso was an attorney, so I was going to buy, try to be an attorney. Everybody liked him. Seemed like he was a very successful guy. And so for the next 27 years, until I got into treatment, I tried to have a plan for my life. And the point is, I, I missed the briefing by God. <laughs> I missed it. I wasn't in the stadium. I didn't know what to do, but I was going to try and that's a very painful way to live. And, and it was full of fear and self-delusion and self-seeking. It really was. You know, the thing that happened as I went through high school, trying to control my life, trying to do well, is that I kept running against obstacles. It, it was very frightening. And when I started to drinking, as I told you at 19, things changed for my life. I mean, I was outgoing. I, you know, I became the partier. I mean, you just asked me, and I could tell you the next time we were going to party. And then I started to blackout drinking. And I, t I bring this part of the story in because I think it's very important for me. At 21, I was getting married and I was moving a wash and dryer and pulled a muscle in my back and the doctor stuck me in the hospital three days before my wedding. And he said, I want you to take these, these Valium and this, this Darvon because it'll help the pain in your back and the muscle spasm. And I did that every four hours for the next 20 years. And uh, it was four, you know, my times of the day were 7 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 7 o'clock, and 11 o'clock. And I lived my life by that pattern. I drank throughout that time. I drank on top of it, even though the label said don't do it. You see, I learned that those things could get me to where I needed to be that day to not have hundreds of forms of fear and self-delusion and self-seeking. I just needed to get there today, and I didn't know how. People have asked me when they find out I'm in recovery, they say, how much did you drink? And you know what the answer for me is legitimately? Whatever it took a, that particular day. That's all. Whatever it took. It was different for different days. I changed brands, I changed flavors, I changed styles, I changed times, I changed places. Whatever it took is what I gave it. I want to talk about the last 18 months I was drinking. I, you know, I don't want to really give you a drunk a lot tonight. I would like to give you some, uh, some of the things that have happened in recovery. And that is, the last 18 months, here's what had happened to me. I had rules. I had a, a 501 rule. You, know, you remember what I mean by that? Is I couldn't drink before 501 in the afternoon because I'd be an alcoholic. You know what I'm saying? And so I had to wait to 501, and then I'd go, go drinking until the last 18 months. And I started drinking vodka and Diet Pepsi. It was a horrible tasting thing. But people couldn't smell the vodka, right? Right, Phil? <laughs> couldn't smell the vodka. So I was drinking, and everybody was, you know, okay. And, and, and I started getting drunk. I started at 4.30, and then 4 o'clock, then 3.30, and then 3 o'clock, then 1.30. And, you know, it was, it was right after lunch, and then it was right at lunch, and it was lunch. And then I would leave the office... And I uh, started leaving earlier because I was feeling pretty good. And I, wasn't, I wasn't afraid about being there. And I didn't have to be there. You know, I can tell my boss tomorrow what I know about him. And I went and get, I'd get my beer and go down to this dead-end street and I'd drink. You know, if you ever did that, but I, I would drink with a... I wouldn't ask for a little paper bag because they would think I was going to drink it. See, I was a closet drinker. Nobody knew I was drinking, right? And so 
what I do is I take this big bag and I tear off a piece of the bag and I wrap up a beer can and I would drink me, you know, riding down the street and I would learn how this quadrangle view of driving, you know, it goes like this and you got the beer in your lap and you're looking like this and the rearview mirrors and you're looking up like this and you're looking, you know, for the police. It's really good until you get to an intersection. It's kind of tough to do those. But then you pull it up to your mouth and you miss your mouth and pour it all down you because you didn't make, make, you make your mouth real right. But I would drink four or five beers and you know what would happen? Something wonderful, something magical would happen between the fourth and the fifth beer. I was fine. <laughs> I'm going to go home now. I can face that crew. <laughs> and so I'd go home. And I'd look in the kitchen. If my wife wasn't there, I would uh, run the beer in and I'd open the, the refrigerator, close, open the bottom uh, shelf, take out the celery, uh, celery, carrots and lettuce, pull it all up, the jungle I called it, and put my beer down and take the jungle and cover it back up. i go in and sit down. i say, well, how are you all doing? Good to see you. And they say, oh, it's fine, except David made a 62 on his algebra test and the washing machine's knocking. I think it's got a little drip out from under. You need to check it. And I'd say, 20 minutes later or so, I'd say, excuse me, I've got to go to the bathroom. And I'd go over to the, beer, uh, to the refrigerator. I'd take me two beers. I always had a sport jacket on most, most of the time. And I'd put my beer in my sport jacket coat pockets like this. And you couldn't stand up and do that because they stand up like this. But see, I, I learned how to walk humpback like this. To the, and I'd go down to my bathroom. Now, let me tell you about my bathroom. My bathroom is this five foot by seven foot room. And it's this, this, uh, it's got ceramic tile and it's got a, you know, a toilet and a magazine rack and it's got a shower, I mean, a, a tub and it's got one of those glass door enclosures. It's got an exhaust fan. And see, I was a closet smoker in those days too. Nobody knew I was smoking. So I'd go into the bathroom and I'd close the door and I'd pull my two beers out and put them down on the magazine rack and I would turn on the exhaust fan. I would light me up a cigarette, pull them out from under the magazine rack. I had them hid under there. I'd light me up a cigarette. I'd pop me a top on a, on a beer and I'd sit there and drink me a beer and smoke me a cigarette and read me a magazine. How much better could you want it? You know what I'm saying? It was wonderful. Nobody could call me. Nobody could come to my house and see me. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? It was wonderful. And so uh, I'd sit there and I'd, I'd drink that beer and I'd finish me, finish off my cigarette. I'd get me another cigarette and drink me another beer and look again at the magazine. Maybe 10, 15, 20 minutes. I don't know. I just have a ball. It's my little personal bar. You know what I'm saying? And so I'm sitting there having a ball. So I'd get up. I'd flush the ashes and the cigarette butts down the toilet. I would take the, the beer cans and I don't know why, but I'd take toilet paper and wrap them in toilet paper. And I'd put them back in my pocket. I think it was so they couldn't see there were beer cans. I'm not sure what this was about. But I did it. And, uh, and then, then I would take and I'd spray the room with Lysol disinfectant so they couldn't smell me smoking. And I'd go by and pick up a little voice and, you know, swig it and spit it, spit it out and go to back to the, to the living room, uh, and then go into the, to the kitchen. And I'd take my beer cans and put them about halfway down in the trash, you know, cover them up. I'd go back in and say, now tell me about that washing machine again. What would you say about it? It's got a little noise. I was fine. I, wasn't, I didn't have any fear, self-delusion. I was just there. Oh, I'll take care of that. And, I, you know, she'd tell me about three or four more things that were going wrong that day. And I'd say, excuse me, i got to go to the bathroom. And I'd go to the bathroom. And on the way, I'd go to the refrigerator and get me two more beers. And I'd do that all night long. I know my family thought I had the worst case of dysentery of any human being that ever lived. I, I mean, seriously, the last 12 months I drank, the, I spent more time in that bathroom when I was home than any place else in my home. Because I started sleeping in my chair. I don't know if you all know what I mean by that. I didn't plan to sleep in my chair. Uh, you know, I was just going to watch a little bit more of Clint Eastwood. See, I had, I had every Clint Eastwood movie that there, that had ever been made, and I, I would watch him all night. And, and I was just, I got to see a little bit more of the good, bad, and the ugly. Let me have one. See, because what would happen is my wife and children would get tired, and they would they'd give me out, and they'd go to bed. And you know what I'd do? I'd go get me a beer and put it on the table right beside my easy chair in the den like I own the house or something. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know what I'm saying? It was, just, it was just me and I had my, my, you know, my feet all kicked up and I was watching my clean Eastwood, good, bad, and ugly. And the next thing I knew, I, I was, uh, it was daybreak and my wife was shaking me trying to get me up to go to work. And I urinated all over myself. And I didn't, I didn't plan to do that. I didn't plan to do that. I didn't plan when I was 13 laying on that ground with the eggs in my face to fall asleep in my chair and urinate on myself. That wasn't my idea of success. But that's where I'd gotten to. Every Saturday, I would get drunk and either get my family mad or give them money to get them out of the house to try to get them to go shop because I was planning this plot. And the plot was I was going to drown myself the next Saturday. Not today, but next Saturday. Thank God I never caught up to that day. And I would plan this very intricate plan. And, and the plan was, and now you'll hear about the self-pity, this self-seeking and this self-pity, hundreds of forms. And I would, I would be out in the lake. I live on the lake and I have a boat. And we'd go out and I would, I would take two 55-pound cinder blocks with a rope. And I'd tie part of the rope to my, the end of the rope to my uh, left leg. I would throw it over the, the blocks. I would jump in with it and pretend like these were my anchors. And I had a boating accident. My leg got caught in the rope as I threw the anchor out. And I would go down and I was scuba diver so I could see the bubbles coming out of my mouth and I'd look up at the surface. And the next part of my dream was I was laying in this casket. Speaking of baseball, I was laying in this casket. I was laying in this casket. And I knew it was a casket because I was looking up and all this soft cloth was up here. And then people would come by just their hands. I never saw their faces. And their hands would come by and run along the soft cloth. And you know what they'd say? They'd say, poor David. 
If he hadn't married the woman he married, he'd have been a good man. You know what I'm saying? Poor David. If he hadn't had those children he had, they just wanted something. They, he had to work himself to death trying to, 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 to satisfy those children. Poor David. If he hadn't married in the family he married into, he'd have been okay. And after about three or four such poor Davids, yeah, I would come too. And what I realized is that they were going to know that I tied the rope and it wasn't going to look like a slip-on deal and they were going to know I killed myself. Because see, in all of my insanity, I wanted to make sure they knew that I didn't kill myself. I wanted to make sure the insurance company would pay double indemnity so that my, my family would think well of me. Now think about that. Hundreds of forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity. You see, last summer, my, my sponsor and I spent a lot of time, not this past, but the past, it's over a year ago now, we spent a lot of time on being a victim. You see, I learned from whomever and wherever, probably growing up, that, that victimhood was almost like the way you live your life. You see, with victimhood, there has to be a persecutor. There, and there has to be a persecutor or I can't be a victim. And I took my eight-step list, my amends list, and out of the top 15, and God was at the top of the list, out of the, those 15, including God, 13 of them were my primary persecutors all my life. Now, let me tell you who they were. They were my mother, my father, my brother, my sister, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, a girl named Betty Jo at work, my two sons, my wife, my Aunt Lossie. Those people, if they would just understand me, if those people would just leave me alone, you know what I'm saying? If they just back off, if they would just stop telling me what to do, I'd be okay. I'd be a success. You see, those were my primary persecutors. And here's what I'm discovering. That when I have persecutors like this, I give up three very important things when I'm a victim. Number one, I give up the right to change. I cannot not be a victim. You know, if you come to me and say, how's it going? I say, oh, it's wonderful. And you ask me the next day, how's life going? Oh, it's great. Next day, how's life going? It's wonderful. After three or four days, I'm not a victim anymore. You see, I had to look at the downside. How's work going? Oh, you won't believe this guy I'm working with. I never mentioned it's the best job I've ever had and it's paying me more money I've ever had and I'm happy except for this guy. Oh, you won't believe it. How'd your vacation go? Oh, you won't believe it. I had a flat tire outside of Knoxville. I was out there for three and a half hours in 90 degree weather trying to get that tire changed. Didn't tell you that I had six wonderful days in Knoxville for my family. You see, everything had to be on the negative. Because see, if I wasn't a victim, then you couldn't be my persecutor. The second thing I gave up was the right to an intimate relationship with my persecutors. I had no chance of having an intimate relationship with my family because I just named them because I didn't trust them and I didn't like them they were out to get me every day you know what I mean just I got to keep my distance it's impossible it's impossible and the last thing I gave up was the need to and the, and the, and the need to be perfect meaning I had to be perfect I had to be the one that was right I just had to be because they had to be wrong or they weren't persecutors so I had to be right and you know what I'm realizing is that recovery for me today and working the 12 steps is about learning how to let go of some of that stuff, about learning how to be not a victim anymore and letting go of that part of my life. Because, see, I realize now that the thing that I paid when I was a victim, the price I paid was that I was abjectly and totally alone. And when I came to this program, I was totally alone because there was nobody in my life except the gal I met in the bar because I thought she really understood me. You know what I'm saying? She really understood me. Family, family finally came to me and uh, they said, you're sick, you need some help. And I, you know, my disease helped me because I, I agreed with them. I said, yeah, I've got, I've, got, I've got some problems. And so I went to treatment. And I don't know why I did, except the grace of God. And there was a moment of clarity. And you see, I think that's what recovery is all about. My son, my youngest son right now is struggling with this. And, and in terms of his own disease and his own treatment this past week and him leaving the treatment center on his own. And, and, and you know, that, that whole concept of the moment of clarity of when when I realized that my life and the way I was living it and the people I was living it with, it was not the way I wanted it anymore. I was sick of that way of living and that moment of clarity. And I think coming to meetings uh, and sharing at meetings and coming to meetings and listening at meetings helps renew that moment of clarity within me. And I need to do that because I believe if I lose that moment of clarity, I'll go back out and drink again. If I don't understand and understand inside of me what it was like and how bad it was, I'll go do it again because it doesn't seem so bad. I got into the treatment center and the third day I was there, you know, I had, st I had my start shirts on and I was, you know, Mr. Successful, I, you know, I thought I looked real good and I was trying to impress everybody in treatment. And I was sitting in the, in the group and the, uh, the counselor, Claire, a wonderful lady, she looked at me and she said, why are you so angry, David? I said, I'm not angry. She said, yes, you are. I said, I'm not angry, Claire. She said, yes, you are. You know how the group gets nosy and they start saying, yeah, you're, yes, you are angry. You're angry at yourself and you're angry. You know, 
they don't want to leave you alone. And I said, okay, I'm angry. And they said, uh, what are you angry with? And I said, I'm angry with my mother. And they said, well, why? I said, because when I was 13, I broke the eggs and she kicked me. I, the same thing I told you. And I told them several other things that happened. When I was 15 and when I was 17. And, and they said, oh, yeah. And Claire said a very important thing. She said, David, where is your mother right now? I said, well, my mother's 69. She's retired. She's probably at home in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, she said, okay. She said, David, what do you think she had for dinner last night? And I said, Claire, I don't know. I was here in detox. And she said, well, what do you think she had? I said, fried chicken, potato salad, green beans, uh, lemon meringue pie, and iced tea. She said, okay. She said, David, what did you have last night for dinner? And I said, I wasn't too hungry. You know, I was, had an upset stomach. I was trying to deal with a few things, and I had a little bit of a roll and some coffee. She said, okay. She said, David, how much sleep do you think your mother got last night? I said, I don't know. She said, guess. I said, seven hours. She said, David, what do you, how much sleep did you get last night? And I said, well, I wasn't too sleepy. And I was trying to deal with a few things, you know, trying to work out some things in my life. And, and, uh, and I had to smoke, and I had to go out to the day room to do that. I couldn't smoke in bed, so I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. She said, okay. She said, David, what did your mother have for breakfast this morning? And I said, I don't know. She said, well, take a guess. I said, okay, two eggs over easy, grits. That's a southern dish. Grits, sausage, uh, toast, and, and coffee. She said, okay. She said, David, what did you have? for breakfast this morning. I said, well, yeah, I wasn't too hungry, Claire. I had an upset stomach. I was trying to deal with a few things, you know, and, and I just wasn't too hungry. I had some toast and coffee. She said, okay. She said, David, where do you think your mother is right now? I said, well, she's probably watching soap operas or talking to a friend at home because she's retired. And, uh, you know, it's a, a morning. And she said, okay. She said, David, where are you right now? And, you know, in the, for the first time in my life, for the very first time in my life, I sat there and I looked around me. I was in totally strange territory in a detox unit. My heart was racing 140-some beats a minute. My blood pressure was 250 over 138. They thought I was going to have a grand mal seizure in any minute. I couldn't walk alone uh, by myself anywhere to the bathroom. Somebody had to follow me because I might have a seizure and choke and die. And you know what I said to them? I said, I'm sitting in a damn treatment center trying to kill myself. That's where I am right now. And she said a very important thing. She said, David, it seems to me that your mother's life is going along pretty well. And it seems to me that you're killing yourself. And she said, the important thing to remember is the resentment. The battle that you're fighting with your mother is between your two ears. She does not know you're fighting it. I said, of course she knows. You know, if you're fighting somebody and, and they don't know you're fighting them, how can it be a fight? You know what I'm saying? It's like, sure she knows. And she said, have you ever taken your mother by her collars of her shirt and pulled her face to your face and said, mother, every day the rest of my life I'm going to show you. I'm just going to show you and let her go. I said, I've never told her that. She said, then she does not know. And the battle you're fighting is between your two ears and nobody else knows about it but you. And the drunks you tell at the bars. You see what I did with my victimhood? You know what I did? I let my victimhood excuse unexcusable behavior. You know what I'm saying? I'd be sitting at the bar and the guy would say, good bartender. He'd say, David, don't you think you've had enough? And I'd say, well, if you were raised by my mother, you'd drink too. Give me another one. David, don't you think you've had enough? If you were married to the woman I'd marry to, you'd drink too. Give me another one. You see, I use my persecutors to excuse unexcusable behavior. It made sense. It got me off the, the hook. And so when, she, when he, she said that, Claire said that, and, I, and she said another important thing. She said, David, you can choose to stop fighting. I said, how do I choose to stop fighting her? In fact, she said, if you don't choose to stop fighting her right now, you don't, you're going to have to leave this treatment center because myself or nor any human being can help you. And I said, well, how do I choose? And she said, you pray for your mother what you want for yourself. And I said, well, what do you mean? She said, what do you want? I said, well, I want to be happy, sober, and free. And she said, well, pray that for your mother. I said, but my mother doesn't drink. She said, that's okay. Just go ahead and pray for her to be sober anyway. And so I, to stay, I had to agree to pray for her before the next group the next morning. And I did not want to do that. Folks, I'm telling you, when I left that group that day, you know what? I, I wanted to show my mother. I didn't know what I was going to show her, but I was going to show her. I didn't want to pray for her. But in the shower the next morning, I decided I had to do it because I did want to stay. I had nowhere to go. And my family didn't want me back. And so I stood in the shower and I said, God, I pray for my mother to be happy, sober, and free. And it didn't come out that smooth. It was really hard. And I was expecting the shower to cut off and the curtain to fall down. You know, nothing like that happened. I got out of the shower, went on to the group, and, and they asked me, first thing, David, did you pray for your mother? I said, yes, I did. And they said, well, good. Then pray every day for the next two weeks. And I said, okay, I'll do that. Well, I did that. And after two weeks, you know what they asked me? David, did you pray every day for the next two weeks? I said, yes, I have. They said, well, then, good. Pray every day for the next two weeks. I was there for three months in treatment in a halfway house, two weeks at a time. That's what I did. I had to agree to pray for her every day just for the next two weeks. You can do that. Now, something started to happen within me. 
And when I left that treatment center, I came home. And the first year and a half of my sobriety, I did not want to see my mother. I detested her. I did not want her in my house. I did not want her around. I called her on Christmas Day or Thanksgiving Day or we might ride up for a few minutes. It was, it was strange because I wanted to see her. But the minute I got around her, 10 or 15 minutes later, I felt like she was vacuuming the guts out of me. And just the insides. Ugh, it was a horrible feeling. It's a terrible feeling. And I don't know why. But it was something else. My sponsor gave me some real good rules. He said, stand behind furniture. Put something between you. If your mother walks over to you, then walk behind the furniture and hold to the chair. If she wants to talk, then sit at a dinner table or a dining room table and have something between you. And those little rules helped me when I was with her. But at a year and a half sober, my sponsor came and he said, okay, David, it's time for you to start acting differently so people can start treating you differently. And I said, what do you mean? He said, that's the eighth step and ninth step. It's about acting differently so people can treat you differently. He said, I want you to write your mother. And I said, I don't have anything to say to my mother. He said, well then write her, Dear Mom, thinking of you, David. I said, but I'm thinking bad thoughts. He said, but she won't know that. She doesn't know you're fighting her. I said, oh, I forgot that. Yeah, okay. And so I went and bought some cards at a little Eckerd's drugstore and I'm on a little sunny face, you know, and a smiley face and I put, Dear Mom, thinking of you, David, and I mailed it. And three weeks later, he said, mail her another one. I mailed her another one. I mailed it. And you know what happened? She wrote me back. And you know what she said? She said, and we only live 65 miles apart now. She said, David, I'm thinking about you too, and it's so, I'm so grateful to know and so glad to know you're thinking about me, and I love you. And she sent me a little cartoon out of the paper. You know what I did? I wrote her back. You know what she did? She wrote me back. You know what I did? I wrote her back. You know what she did? She wrote me back. And you know what I did? I called her. I said, Mom, why don't you come and visit me? And I couldn't believe the words were coming out of my mouth. I was still praying for her every day. She came and she sat down at the end of a sofa across the room from my brother and I. Larry and I live in the same town. And she came and sat down. And here's exactly what she did. She was 71 years old at the time. And she sat down and she looked at us. And here's what came out of her mouth. She said, when I was six years old, I sat on my grandmother's lap. And my grandmother ran her fingers through my hair and told me how beautiful I was. And what a nice person I was. And everything within me wanted to say, Mother, I've heard that story hundreds of times. I don't want to hear that. We're here to visit. And something stopped me. And I was able to look at my mother. And you know what I saw? I saw a lady who was scared to death and did not know how to talk to her children, who herself was filled with hundreds of forms of fear. You see, I saw her tell that story, that old familiar story, because it was a time in her life that she felt safe and loved and accepted. And she wanted to share that at this moment of fear. I saw myself in her. I saw my mother and I saw me. And for the first time, I could see it from a different picture. Trip. We had never been anywhere together, just the two of us. We went up to Washington, D.C. to see the cherry blossoms. And on the way up, you know what we talked about? We talked about, I told her how frightened I was as a child and how I didn't know how to live life and how I was so scared. And you know what she told me about? How frightened she was as a child and how, how she was so frightened about doing life because she didn't know how. And I told her, I said, Mom, you know, when I was 13 and I broke those eggs, I said, I, that really scared me to death. And she told me about when her dad beat her with a tobacco stick because she burned a, a, a biscuit in the oven when she was 10. And my mother said to me when I told her about breaking the eggs, you know what she said to me? She said, son, there has not been a day in the last 31 years that has passed in my life that I haven't thought about that incident with shame and fear and guilt and remorse. And I'm very sorry I did that to you. And at that moment... I knew that my mother had paid a greater price than I had paid. And it was time to let that go. It was just time. And that's why I can share it with you tonight. It's no longer an emotional deal. There's been a healing there. There's been a healing and a letting go. My mom is a neat lady. We've become great friends. In fact, I was with her two weeks ago. Uh, she has, she's 75 now, and she's met, uh, my dad died 11 years ago, and she's met a, a young man, young, he's six months younger than she is, uh, named Lawrence. <laughs> And you know what I was able to do? I was able to see my mother like a little teenage girl. She would, I said, Mother, you going to Senior Citizen Club? She said, Yes, I am. I said, You meeting any neat people? And she said, Yes. And she started giggling and turning and she turned, she blushed. I'd never seen that. And I went over and I hugged her and we sat together the next morning. I went in the bedroom because I had to leave early. And I put my arm around her and she put her head on my shoulder and she said, Thank you so much for supporting me with Lawrence. She said, I don't know where this is going to go. I said, But Mom, I'm going to pray for you and Lawrence. And she said, Thank you. She said, But it feels so good to not be alone and the thoughts about not being alone. She said, See, I could share that moment with my mom. When she was my persecutor, I could not. I could not. I could not. This program has given me that back. I left the treatment center, and I was home three days, and, and the counselors told me to go home and enjoy my family, not fix them. And I thought, well, I, I can do that. And you know what I did? When I got home, I realized I didn't know how to enjoy them because we never enjoyed anything. There was always tension and crisis and problems. And so I, was, I went and bought a, a 10,000 joke book by Milton Berle. 10,000 jokes. And on the way home, I'd have in my front seat, I'd memorize a joke. 
And I'd go in and tell one or two jokes to my children. My sons were 17 and 13. And they'd go, Dad, geez, that stinks. And I'd say, okay, well, I'll go practice and I'll come back. So I'd go in the back of the house, practice a couple times, come back. And, and so what happened, the jokes were not funny, but my attempts at telling the jokes became the humor. You know what I'm saying? It became the humor. And we started to laugh in our home. We had never laughed in our home. I don't even feel what I'm talking about. There were nervous giggles, but there was never a belly laugh just to be there and be okay. The third day I was home, my son, as I said, 17, he was uh, 210 pounds, tackling a football team bigger than I, six foot six. And uh, he was laying on the, the, uh, in the den on the sofa. It's 4.30 on Monday morning. I was going back to work for the first time after three months, scared to death. And he was running the TV pretty well wide open. And so I went into the den and I gave my best treatment center voice. And I said, I said, excuse me, son, I need for you to cut the TV down because I'm very frightened about going back to work. You know, that's, that's the stuff I learned in treatment. And he said, I'm not going to turn it down and you can't make me. And, and, you know, and I thought, well, I'll try one more time. I said, no, you don't understand my feelings about this. Let me share my feelings with you. <laughs> and you know, he said, I don't care about your feelings. You know? <laughs> I'm not going to cut it down and you can't make me. And he jumped up and he got right in my face and he was punching me in the chest while I lost my treatment center motif. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I lost it. And I was going, I was going back in him and he was going back. And, and we were yelling at each other, you're going to cut the TV down, you know. And I paid for the TV. It's my thing. You know, we're claiming territory now. And whose parts and, and pieces are they? And, and then he, sells something, he said something so loud. He said, you damn alcoholic, get out of my life. You've destroyed it. By the grace of God, I didn't hit him. Because I wanted to. And then I got so frightened. And I got that nauseating feeling. If you know what I'm talking about, there's a nauseating feeling right here. And I thought, oh man, what am I going to do? You see, the second step is come to believe that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to sanity. And I thought that was going to happen. I believed that that power was going to help me. I started believing in my counselor and my sponsor a little bit. And, and, and then I went home and he was going to fix my family. And, and it didn't happen. So that power must not be there. You see, I've got to come back up with a plan. And I don't, know how, I don't have a plan. I don't know how to fix this guy. So I went to my bedroom and I got on my knees and started praying. And I started crying. And I called my sponsor and I said, Keith, and I was angry. I mean, I was, I was frightened. I didn't know what I was. I was just really messed up. And I said, Keith, my son called me a damn alcoholic. <laughs> he said, real quietly, he said, well, aren't you? <laughs> you know what I said? I said, well, yeah, I am. He said, well, then he just called you who you, what you are. I said, oh, so I thought it out the next one. I said, well, but he's yelling at me. He was screaming at me and he was punching me in the chest. He was provoking me. He said, very quietly, David, did you yell at him? I said, well, yeah, I yelled at him, but he was yelling at me. He said, good. He said, I want you to go and tell your son and make apologies and say, I'm very sorry that I yelled at you and I'll try not to ever do that again. And then I want you to say, David, may I have permission to hug you? And you know, I knew this man was crazy. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I mean, I sat down and I thought, he wants me to hug this guy. And I wanted to hear him. See, here's how I handle situations. When my children wouldn't do right, you know what I would do? When they just wouldn't listen, wouldn't mind, I just wouldn't speak to them for about a week. I don't know if you ever did that. You know, I just pass them in the hall, pretend like it didn't exist. Sit down at dinner with them and never make eye contact. They ask me for something, I say, yeah, here it is. You know, I wouldn't even look their way. I was going to show them who's in control here. You know what I'm saying? That's how I, you know, so I hung up my phone. And when I hung up the phone, I said, I'll never do that. <laughs> I'm going to go on to work. So I took a shower, went on to work, got there early. And then I got there and I got frightened because inside I didn't know. I didn't have a plan. I just didn't have a plan. And I knew this God of my understanding that I started. I thought I knew he wasn't going to help me. But I had to go try. And so I got back in my car. I went home. And my son it was just at daybreak. And my son was out pacing the backyard, just as angry as he could be. And I walked over to him and I said, David. And he went, huh? <laughs> Turned and looked at me. I said, I am so sorry that I yelled at you this morning. And I'll try not to do that again. And he said, what? It's like I was a stranger. And I was. You know what I'm saying? I was a stranger. And I said, I'm sorry I yelled at you. And I'll try not to do that again. And, and, and he said, oh, okay. And I said, could I have permission to hug you? And he truly looked at me in total amazement. And he said, yeah. And I went over and it was like hugging this podium. And he was just, he was rigid. He was just shaking. It was like this, you know. And I, I put my arms around him. I had my, my, my head almost to his shoulder. And I was hugging him. And I thought, you know what I was thinking? I had my eyes closed and I was thinking, my sponsor is full of bull. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if your sponsor gives you lines, but he only gave me two lines to say. I had said both of those lines. I was hugging my son, and after this, I have to put my tail between my legs and get in my car and go back to work so my son can think I'm crazy. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't working. But here's what happened. The miracle of this program, the miracle of this program is the minute I started to let go, the very second, my son grabbed me, and he hugged me, and he said, Dad, I am so sorry I called you a damn alcoholic. He said, I did not mean to do that. I am so thankful that you're trying to live sober. I'm so thankful that you're an AA. And you know what I could do? 
I could hold him and tell him how sorry I was that he lived in my home for 17 years and he never knew me one second of one day without alcohol or drugs in my body. That I was very sorry for that. And I was going to try to live differently. And you know what we did? We stood there and we hugged in my backyard in the morning. And we cried and we sobbed. And two important things happened. The first thing is, I came to believe a little more that this power greater than me is going to restore me and my family and my relationships to sanity. And the second thing is, I came to understand a little bit more that my sponsor was going to help me if I just listened to it. You see, I don't know how to live. See, I have a how problem. I don't know how to live. And I have to ask my sponsor, who's been through this before, how should I do this? And say the lines. That's my job then is to say the lines that he gives me. Do the deal, whatever it is. Like read the, <laughs> read the, how it works. My youngest son, and let me, in fact, let me share with you uh, just a, a story about my oldest son. He, he's in the program. He's in uh, Al-Anon and ACOA. He's been in recovery six and a half years. Three months later after that morning, he went into treatment. He was uh, threatening to kill himself, very depressed, punching holes in our walls in our home, punching out windshields inside his girlfriend's windshield with his fist. Very angry young man. Um, and so he went to treatment. And he is now, as I said, has his own program. His Tuesday, his Tuesday night and Wednesday nights are his home group meetings. And he told me about two years ago he got a new sponsor named Jim. And Jim P. And he said, Dad, I got me a new sponsor. I said, well, that's great. He said, well, let me tell you about him. He said, Dad, he's needing, he's sharp, and, you know, he's looking himself up. And, and then he said something very important. And I'm not saying this in a proper way. This is the miracle of this program. Because I didn't do anything. I listened to my sponsor. He said, Dad, he said, Dad, the reason I chose him is because he reminds me so much of you. You can't get from where we were to where we are today. You know, you just can't do that. And I'm so grateful that we've been able to start over. My youngest son has not been able to start over. We haven't done that yet. And he has not, he's, you know, has not participated in treatment or recovery. And this week he had a mandate with his employer and he either went to treatment or lose his job. And he went to treatment for three days and withdrew. And, you know, he's really hurting. But yet this morning uh, he said he would take me to the airport. And I said, okay. And I went up to tell him that I decided to drive and so I could go on and and he was in the bed and he looked up at me and he said, Dad, he said, at least this morning. He's had a hard time getting up because he goes out and drinks all night. You know, kind of one follows the other. And he said, uh, he said, at least I'm up this morning. And he said, and also at least while I didn't go to bed early, I wasn't drinking last night. And he said, and Dad, this is a one week that I've been sober. And you know what? I said, congratulations, Scott. You deserve that. And you deserve sobriety. And one day I hope someone, some stranger will 12-step him. I, I can't do that. You know, I, I can pray for him and love him and accept him just with his disease right where he is. But that's all I can do for Scott. The third step for me was a very difficult step. And it was a difficult step because I had tried all my life to turn my will and my life over to care of God. To God. And that's what I read. I never understood this thing about doing, making a decision. You see, because I think the steps for me, the first five steps about learning who I am, steps six through ten are about accepting who I am, that I've discovered who I am, and steps ten and eleven, or eleven and twelve, are about forgetting who I am. And so when I got to step three, I didn't know how to do this deal. And my sponsor said, you just have to do all the other steps. You've got to do four steps, fifth step, six step, and make a decision to do those, and become willing to do those. That's all you've got to do. He told me I could not turn my will and my life over to care of God when I was one year sober because I didn't trust God. And he was right. I was pretty angry. And I had my hit list. And he let my girlfriend leave me when I was, you know, my first girlfriend, he let her leave me. My grandmother died. My daddy died. You know, I had a hit list with him. Didn't like it. But what is happening as I've worked through steps four and five and looking at my inventory in regards to resentments and fears and sexual activity and telling somebody else and admitting it to God, to myself and to another person, I'm learning that it's that's me. The hardest thing I've done in steps six and seven is to accept that that is me. You see, I had this perfect image of myself and I wanted to be so much more than I thought I was. And I had told you I was so much more. And I said things like, I don't need your help. And I started to believe it. No, I'm fine. I'm just like, I'm fine. And I started to believe it. And what has happened to me is that uh, I don't know how to accept the acceptance I'm given. You see, the God of my understanding saved me and got me here. And I've asked my sponsor, why is it that I got into recovery and others, my uncle C.G. died of this disease, a horrible death. Why is that? And my sponsor says a very important thing. He said, because God's not through with you yet. He's got something else he wants you to do. And you need to be sober to do it. And I said, well, what is it? You know, what is it? He said, you will know when you've completed it. When you finished it, you'll go, oh, that's what he wanted me to do. I come to the, to the conclusion, because we're running out of time, 
And I want to share with you a story. I was working my 10th step and had that's been a very important step for me about looking daily at my activities. Have I not been selfish, dishonest, re, uh, resentful? Looking at have been angry and looking at those things in my life. And, and because I think it's about being of service. I don't know how to be of service. My sister called me two and a half years sober. She called me and she said, I want you to be in my wedding. I said, sure. She said, uh, I want you to sing in my wedding. I said, I don't. I sing in a choir, but I'm not a soloist. She said, well, why don't you and Donna? My wife has a very good voice. Why don't you sing a duet for me? So they've sent this music, Lee Greenwood, uh, to me and Barbara Streisand. And I had a tape in my car and I practiced that song all the month of August and September. We went up October 15th, you know, and I was ready, man. I was ready. Got into the church and all the family was gathering. My wife and, and brother-in-law to be in the back of the church. And, and I stand up and I have to start out. The first notes come from me. And, and I opened my mouth and these bricks came out. These unbelievable bricks. They just kind of fell on the floor and hit me on the toes. And I was like this. And this fear hit me. I don't know if you know what I'm saying, but this fear, this nauseating fear. I could not sing another note. It was just unbelievable. And my sister leaned on my brother-in-law to be shoulder, and she went like this. And I know she was thinking, my gosh, what am I going to do with this guy? He's my brother. I can't even fire him. You know what I'm saying? She can't get rid of him. So I went home that night, back to, to, to Fayetteville, 65 miles away. And, I, and here's what I did. I couldn't sleep. I tossed and tumbled all night. And about 6 o'clock, I got up, and I got my big book, and my big, big book. And I got my devotionals, and I got my notebook so I could do my journaling. And I went, and I sat down, and I was reading my big book. And I was, you know, trying to meditate. And, and here's what started happening. Just, just, just happened. I went, Gail, this is David. Yeah, I woke up this morning. I've got a real sore throat. I don't think I can sing in your wedding today. And I started, I said, I can't do that. I, I just can't do that to her. No, I wouldn't do that to her. You know, I started back reading, meditating, and I said, Gail, this is David. And I was practicing. And so I laid my books down and I went to my bathroom. And this is the truth. You see, all of my life, prior to being sober, during my drinking, you know what I used as a wonderful excuse and the only excuse that was a legit, legitimate enough for me not to show up for life? Is I was sick. See, if I was sick, everybody, oh, I'm sorry, you feeling bad? Yeah, and I, I could practice my voice. On a hangover morning, I didn't want to go to work. I'd call in, I'd go, oh, it's unbelievable, I feel so bad. And I, I practiced it, and they say, oh, please stay home, you sound horrible. And I'd get off the phone and go, yeah, another one, you know? And about 15 minutes later, I'd start feeling guilty because I'd lied. See, I practiced being sick. And what I went to that morning, I went to my bathroom to practice being sick. And I got to the mirror. And on my mirror, I have written on the upper left-hand corner. I still do. When I was about three and a half months sober, my sponsor said to write, David, you're wrong, up on the upper left-hand corner of my mirror. And he said, he said I said, well, why am I supposed to do that? And he said, you'll understand one day. Well, I'm looking in this mirror, and I'm practicing, and I'm looking sick. I'm going, Gail, this is David. And I'm practicing my voice, and I'm really getting ready to go call her. And I, I glanced up, and I saw, David, you're wrong. And for the first time, it hit me. I said, thank God that I'm wrong right now, because if I was right right now, I'd have to live frightened like this and withdraw from life the rest of my life. And I don't want to live this way anymore because I took an inventory. My mother was asleep up in Raleigh. My, my sister was asleep. My family was. There was nobody awake. I was the only human being in my family, in my world. Me. I was making me afraid. I didn't know that. I did not have that bit of information. Down in South America, there's a tribe of Indians. They capture monkeys in a very unusual way. They build this large clay pot, just solid clay. They put a cavity at the top of it and this long noose net. It's just big enough for the monkey to stick their hand and wrist down into it and get it down into the cavity. And they put some sweet beans, kind of like jelly beans to you and I. And they take this jar and jug out in the, in the, in the morning time in the clearing in the jungle and they go away. And the monkey sees it, very curious, comes over, smells it, sees the, uh, smells the sweet beans. He puts his hand in and grabs a couple of sweet beans. The only problem is when he's got them in his fist, he can't get his hand out. And his hand is caught in this jar. And he will stay there all day long holding on to those sweet beans. And all the monkey's got to do to be free is just open his hand and he slides right out. But he'll hold on all day long trying to jerk this jug and it won't move because it's so heavy. And in the afternoon, the Indians will come back around and knock him over the head, knock him unconscious. And then when he's unconscious, he lets go of the sweet beans and they put him in a cage and take him to the river and sell him. And they use the same jug, the same sweet beans to capture the next monkey the next day. But you know what, folks? I am like that monkey. Everything that happened in my life, I held on to it. For whatever reason, I thought I had to hold on to it. I don't know where I got that impression. I had to hold on to it. And what the 12 steps are doing and what you people are doing by sharing with me what you're doing to let go is that I've been able to work the 12 steps on each of those problems. I thought it was like one big let go. It's like, okay, I'm going to let everything go. And I can't do that. I'm letting, there's a time I had to let my mother go. That was killing me. There's a time I had to let my wife go. There's a time I had to let my, my first son go. There's a time now I've had to let my second son go. You see, I can't change them. I cannot fix them. I had to let them go. 
And I think it's going back and saying I'm powerless and there's God greater than me and he's going to help restore me to sanity in this relationship. And I'm going to begin to turn my will, my life about this thing over to God. And I'm going to inventory it. And I'm going to talk it with somebody about it, my sponsor. And I'm going to go back and see what my part in this thing is, my defect. And I'm going to make amends if I need to. And I'm going to stay daily, stay in touch with what I need to do. You see, I think that's for me how I'm coming to understand the 12 steps is I'm, I'm letting go hundreds of small things, not one big thing. Thank you for letting me be here tonight. I, uh, I really mean that. It's very special. Uh, Indiana has been super. I've enjoyed the scenery, the color. Uh, I've enjoyed Ed's hospitality. He's been very cordial today and Phil. Thank you so much. Good night.